just slightly and uh, say that after the service today, um, pastors, and I ask you specifically, if you're just going to remain in the back space, um, if, if you just wanted to receive a little more prayer today, if you wanted to stand with me, this work that Heidi is really strange, but let me, I'll finish my sentence. So if you just want somebody to stand with you in prayer, we're going to be available at the back space today just to pray with anybody who uh, needs it or wants it today. We always make prayer available, um, but today we want to take a special focus because the Lord is doing something. It was funny because how what Janice just did, Pastor Janice just let us in, how that happens is you know, I'm kind of down front here and people, leaders that sense a word from the Lord will come and share it with me and I'll say, yeah, go for it if, if it's, it lines up with what I feel like God is saying. And uh, so my wife had leaned over to me about, I don't know, 15 seconds before Janice came up and said something almost exactly the same. She's like, I feel like we need to stand with people today. And then Janice came up and she said, I feel like the Lord is saying this. I was like, holy cow, I don't even think I have an opinion in this. It's like I don't get to have an opinion. So so the Lord is speaking this morning, amen? And it's awesome. Uh, so would you uh, open your Bibles with me uh, to two places? You want to turn it to the very first page of Genesis, or maybe the second page, if it's uh, Genesis chapter 2 is what we're going to look at, and Hebrews chapter 4. So you're going to want to find those two places uh, as we uh, start this morning. Happy Thanksgiving to you. Thank you. I feel so much better now. It's just like, for a second there, it was like, well, we don't care. Yeah, so happy Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is this week, so that means like Christmas is like Friday or Saturday, right? It's like how it happens. Christmas is coming up. Um, are you ready? Are you ready for Christmas? No, no. You know, it's like actually Friday is Black Friday, which I saw in the on the on a radio ad. Or that's funny. I saw it on a radio ad. I heard on a radio ad that Black Friday now is the whole month of November. So we get the whole month of November to celebrate Black Friday, and as soon as Black Friday is over, then Christmas begins, right? How many of you, when I said the word Christmas, suddenly felt a little anxious inside? Felt a little bit like this lady. You got a little bit of Christmas crazy going on. Yeah, it, Christmas always makes me feel just slightly anxious because you've got this drive to find the perfect gift for just the right person, right? And it's because we love and care for each other. We want to give the best and perfect gift, but man, we have to go shopping, we have to go to the mall, we have to do all this crazy stuff. And some of you are thinking, why are we talking about this now? Thanksgiving is Thursday. Why are we even starting on Christmas? Well, next week, next Sunday, begins what the church calls Advent. It's a season of preparation and of, of waiting for what Christ is going to do in his church and what he's going to do in his world. Um, some of you were thinking when I said that we we're going to start celebrating Advent that, oh, maybe the church set aside time for Christmas shopping. And we haven't, thankfully, not yet. Um, and likewise, Christmas, or Advent isn't a time that's just set aside for like you know Christmas lighting and decorations. It's not a time for making cookies and snacks and things like that. All the accoutrements of Christmas that we've put onto this thing. Advent is about seeing past those and to remember what Christmas is really all about. This year for Advent, we're going to do something slightly different than what we've done in the past. We're going to... Um, we're, I just feel like the Lord has impressed upon my heart that what we need to talk about as a church over the season of Advent is one word, joy. Joy. I think the Holy Spirit wants to speak something to us about this. It is close to God's heart. Joy is one of the fruits of the Spirit. If you guys remember in Galatians, the, the fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Uh, these things are the, the, the fruit that comes out of the life of a person who is following Jesus. 
Now, we, we all want peace, right? We all want world peace. We, not world peace, but we want world peace. We want peace in our hearts, that inner calm in the midst of outer strife, outer chaos. We all want love. You know, we, the love of God is one of the primary topics we have to talk about over and over again. We want to understand how God loves us and why God loves us and that that love is unconditional. These things come out of us kind of naturally because they're something we want. But joy, number two in the list, right? Joy is something that we wrestle with, we struggle with. And it's supposed to be something that comes out of us just naturally. When we look at the world around us today, I see a great lack of joy. I see a pursuit of happiness. I see a chase after fulfillment through stuff, but not joy. And sadly, when I look at the church, when I look at followers of Jesus, I see similar things, including in myself. I see very often fatigue, weariness, anxiety, hurry, worry, stress, and fear. These are the things that much of the church seems to be, that, that's the fruit that's coming out of our lives. And these things are sometimes, sometimes interrupted with moments of joy, of peace, of patience, of kindness, of goodness, of gentleness, of self-control. The Lord wants something in our life to be released, not because he wants it in this world or because he just needs this to happen, but because it's a gift for you and I to experience from him. The perfect gift this Christmas is the joy of the Lord, which can be our strength. Solomon wrote in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 6, he says this. He, he was like, Solomon, had, he, he was a very depressed guy. He, he had everything but nothing at the same time. And if you read the book of Ecclesiastes, he's like, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. And then he's always like, I see an evil in the world. And he points it out. And here's one of his evils he saw in the world. That God gives men wealth, possessions, and honor. So that he lacks nothing. Nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but instead a stranger enjoys them. And to me, that sounds a lot like our world. We are filled with good things, but we can't enjoy them because we're busy trying to get more good things. Constantly striving for happiness, but never experiencing joy. God doesn't want his people to look different, to speak different than the rest of the world so much as he wants them to experience life different. He wants them to experience peace, that inner calm. He wants them to experience joy and experience God's steadfast, unwavering love. Joy is the sole feeling of deep happiness, contentment, and blessing because of an ever-present goodness. This is what we're going to talk about for the next four or five weeks. Joy. We're going to unpack this. The sole feeling of deep happiness, contentment, and blessing because of the present goodness. Wouldn't it be nice to experience some of that feeling in the midst of all the light hanging, the Christmas shopping, the mall, mall ratting? Is that even a verb? The white elephanting? I'm just going to make up verbs while I'm at it, right? The parent visit, or better yet, the in-law visit. Wouldn't it be nice to experience that joy in the midst of those things? It could transform your whole holiday season. And what if it extended beyond the holidays? Past New Year's Day, what if on the 2nd of February you were experiencing a deep sense of abiding joy in your life? What if it extended from January to February to September and October? What if it went from your 20s to your 30s to your 40s to your 50s to your 70s to your 90s? Who wouldn't want that, right? So, I just enjoyed and introduced our whole new series. This is the series that we're going to be doing starting next week. 
and it doesn't start until next week. And so you're wondering why I'm talking about it today. Advent is going to be about joy, but as I began to prepare for this series, I felt like the Lord was kind of revealing a couple of things to me in the midst of that. And I had to ask myself, like, what is joy, and why don't we experience joy, and where does it come from? I can't have a couple of questions here, uh, or a couple of answers to that question, why don't we experience joy as a people? And I came up with two reasons. I felt like the Lord said to me, first of all, you guys don't know what joy really is. And you look it up in the Bible, you look it up in a dictionary, it's not real clear. We define happiness as joy, we define goodness as joy, but we don't get what real Christian, godly, Holy Spirit-driven joy is. The second thing is this, is that as a culture, we are too busy to experience joy. We are just flat too busy to experience joy. We are so full with activities for preparing for the next thing, for getting ready for Christmas, for getting ready for Thanksgiving, for striving after happiness, that all of the things that are supposed to bring joy in our life, we can't enjoy them. We can't enjoy what's right in front of us. We can't experience that feeling of blessing and the blessings that God has given us because we're looking for the next blessing. We can't be present in the moment because we're busy planning the next. Margaret Feinberg um, is an author. She wrote this book called Fighting Back with Joy. It's a, it's a story of actually her going through a uh, really, really difficult struggle with breast cancer. And uh, while she was going through breast cancer, it was like the Lord said to her before, I want you to think and work on this idea of joy. And then she got, winds up being diagnosed with cancer. She has to rewrite her book as she's going through this cancer uh, experience. And so we're going to be kind of referencing that book throughout the series. But today I just kind of wanted to share this little story that she tells in there about a joy experience, a joy experiment. And the joy experiment is this. When she decided that to experience joy, she was going to say yes to everything. Any question that anybody asked, Janice is like, I mean, she, her mind was already there. I can imagine what that would be like. She would say yes to everything. Um, I think she's crazy, but sometimes crazy is entertaining, right? Um, so for two weeks, for two weeks, she decided that she would say yes to everything. Everybody's looking like, what happened? And I don't know what's going on. Is it that? I'm talking. All right. I'm going to keep talking. Now my microphone's gone. So here's, I'm going to read a quote from the book. Ready? I received a unanimous response to this experiment. And this is it. This is wacky town. She told her husband, you can say no to anyone or anything you want, but I'm agreeing to every request, including emails, texts, phone calls, tweets, mail that's addressed to me. In the first few days, I made so many donations that I had to start selling furniture and clothes on eBay just to fund the yes experiment. I helped save animals and refugees and fund microloans. At least I think I did. Do you want to donate to Easter Seals? Yes. Would you read my 50,000-word book on North American flora and fauna? Yes. Would you like to supersize that order? Yes. What was the result of this experiment? This is what she had to say. Saying yes to everything was causing me to spend time and energy on inconsequential things, ignoring the people who mattered most. Rather than increasing my joy, the yes experience made me hypervigilant to avoid anyone who might ask me for anything. It was actually elbowing me away from joy. Saying yes to everything creates a busy life. It creates a full life. 
And a busy life has been equated to a good life. But a busy life pushes us away from joy. Joy. We're talking about joy and we're talking about busyness, right? So busyness is what uh, our culture tells us gives us value. All of the things that we do make us a valuable person. If we are busy, then we are indispensable, right? And if we are not busy, then we're lazy and then we're not a part of the great American dream. We're not creating the great American dream. But busyness pushes us away from joy because it keeps us constantly striving for the next thing. I got to tell you, in my heart, in my mind, and what I read in the scripture, that I think that busyness is a faith problem. It's a faith problem. It's not a scheduling problem. It's not an income problem. It's not a workload problem. It's not a my boss problem. It's not a your boss problem. It's a faith problem. To experience joy, we have to be able to stop long enough to recognize that everything that we've been given is a gift, and then we can experience it as a gift of joy. To experience the gifts of the Spirit, we have to be able to rest in the Lord, to receive what he's given us. When the Puritans, you guys know the Puritans, the pilgrims, those guys, when they came to, they're the little guys with the funny-looking hats and the, you know, the funny little black hat and the buckled shoes. These guys, you all know them. Thanksgiving time, this is who we remember, right? Remember the pilgrims. When they decided that they were going to pack it all up, pack up their stuff, sell their land, and sign up for a three-month seasickness tour across to the New World, I can't imagine three months on a boat, man. Ooh, just, I feel ill thinking about it. When they decided to do this, do you guys know why they did this? Why they came to the new world? You know what it was that was driving them to sell everything? Yeah. That is perfect textbook explanation. Religious freedom. They weren't allowed to worship the God and worship the Lord in the way that they felt that they were called to worship. And you know what the number one thing was on their list? The Sabbath. Their culture drove them and caused them, and even their, their uh, the governmental system was pushing them to violate the day of rest that they felt that the Lord commanded. The very first people to come and settle in this new world, I'm not talking about the First Nations, I'm talking about the people that came from Europe to here, were fleeing the religious oppression of their governmental system that caused them to overwork. Now, you might call these people the founding fathers of our nation. The founding fathers of our nation were fleeing too much work. They wanted to rest before the Lord when they came here. They wanted to practice the Sabbath correctly. And now, throughout much of the nation's history, we've had blue laws. You guys know what blue laws are? They're laws that prevented stores from being open on Sunday, prevented uh, city and public employees from working on Sundays unless there was an emergency. Our nation for years legislated rest. They legislated rest, and I find it very ironic um, because if you look across our nation today, as my friend A.J. Soboda says, we have photoshopped out of our culture any idea of rest. We photoshopped it right out of there. We are literally killing ourselves to live. We are killing ourselves to live. Many of us today believe that God's commandment to rest and to take a Sabbath is not something that we are bound to any longer. That that's a part of the law, and Jesus fulfilled the law, and we are no longer bound to it. And you know what Galatians chapter 3 says? That we are no longer bound to the law. It is very clear. We are not. However, let me ask you this question. 
Think about the Ten Commandments, right? This is the centerpiece of the Old Testament law, the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not covet your neighbor's wife, honor your father and mother, all of these things, right? Think about those Ten Commandments. Which of those Ten Commandments are you okay with breaking now? Anybody good with murder? You know, Jesus came and died for us, and we're no longer bound to the law. Anybody okay with murder? Anybody think that, that God thinks it's all right if we just go ahead and steal from one another? Anybody think that? What about the Sabbath day? To keep the Sabbath day, the day of rest before the Lord, and to make it holy. In fact, if you wanted, if you took a pie and divided it up into ten pieces, and this was the Ten Commandments, each commandment representing a, a portion of that pie, if you wanted to eat any piece of that pie if you could, I would recommend taking the Eighth Commandment, the day of rest, because it would be the biggest. God said the most about the day of rest in the Ten Commandments than he did any other law. We're not okay with breaking any of these other laws. And as a pastor, if I was to break any of those other laws, you guys would run me out of town, tarred and feathered, right? You know, they'd put me in jail, the, the denomination would fire me, whatever. But if I break the Eighth Commandment, you might give me a raise, right? Because I'm indispensable. The more I work, the more I do, the more indispensable I become, the better I am as a pastor. We live in a world that drives us to break this law of God. Now, we want to talk about not being bound to the laws. Another point I want to make about the Sabbath law is that it is the only command of God that predates the law. The only command from God that predates the law of Moses. It goes back to creation. It goes back to the sixth day when God finished his work, and then on the seventh, he rested. I don't know about you. I'm so sorry, I've lost myself in the notes. God institute, institutes the Sabbath right from the get-go. Genesis 2, 1 through 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. The Jews, they often remember their Sabbath day by lighting a candle to remind them. And so we're going to use this candle actually throughout our Advent season. This is the Christ candle. And we're going to remember that on the seventh day, God rested. We're going to light that candle for the remainder of our service this morning. God rested. Why? Why would God rest? Was he tired? I mean, was he tired like this? What kind of God would God be if he got tired, right? Jeez, all this speaking into creation stuff really has me knackered. I think that I'll uh, just drool on my keyboard for a bit. What if God was like that? The Bible says that God doesn't get tired. In fact, it says that he does not sleep nor does he slumber. That means that he doesn't take naps and he doesn't sleep in, ever. God doesn't get tired, but God rested. God rested from his work, and I think that there are three reasons why. First of all, I think God rested from his work because it models to all of creation how we were intended to work, how we were intended to function with a rhythm of one day out of seven given over to rest. God rested so that we would know how much we need rest. Rest is actually, and if you think about this in terms of it being one of the laws, one of the commandments of God right from the very beginning, it's a, it's a command. And so for us to rest is an act of obedience. 
we rest as followers of Jesus whether we need it or not. It's an act of obedience. We said a few weeks ago that a sure sign of an idol is anywhere in your life where you experience anxiety or disobedience. So if a command from God is to rest and we disobey it, we have made an idol. We are worshiping at an, at worshiping an idol. Think about it. God commands us to rest. God himself modeled it. God can actually say, do as I say and as I do. He is the only create, only being in all of creation I know that can say that with all honesty. Do as I say and as I do. Yet we look at all the things we need to do in life, the papers we need to write, the jobs we have to finish, the lawns we need to mow, the trees we need to cut down, and we feel anxious. The anxiety reveals a fear. I won't get a good grade if I don't get that paper done. The customer won't, customer won't hire me again. The neighbors will think I'm lazy if I don't mow the lawn for a month. They might. And that fear and anxiety leads us to disobey God's command to rest. Busyness is an idol, or at the very least a result of an idol in our lives. And that idol is calling us to live in a way that is not God's way. The Americans, as Americans, we worship time. We worship time. It's been suggested that often the very last thing that gets saved in the life of a believer is our schedule. God saves us from our, from our addictions. God saves us from our broken relationships. But we keep working. We keep going. In fact, if you were to look at the church as a whole and see which part of the church most struggles with busyness, you know what it is? It's the Pentecostal church. Pentecostal evangelicals like you and me who deeply believe that Jesus is coming again soon and we need to tell everybody we can about it. We are so focused on working for God that we don't rest. We don't. The last thing that is often redeemed in the believer's life is our schedule. We say things like, hey, a small group, yeah, that sounds really important, so I'm going to make time for that. I'm going to make time for that. Who are you, Chuck Norris? I mean, Chuck Norris. Chuck Norris doesn't wear a watch. He decides what time it is. I wish I knew that you had the skill to make time because I would have asked you to help me out during my master's degree. Could you make some extra time for me? I've only got 24 hours in this day. I could use 26. Could somebody help me out? That's how we think, though. We're going to make time for these good things. When we live like this, we're worshiping at the altars of this world. We're worshiping at the altar of time. We're worshiping at the altar of busyness. We're worshiping at the altar of significance because of our work. But to take a Sabbath is to declare with your schedule that Jesus Christ is Lord of your life. To take a day of rest is to declare with your schedule that Jesus is Lord. Many of us are willing to say it. I'm a Christian. Jesus is Lord of my life. Let me see your day runner. Prove it. Prove it with your day runner. The second reason I think that God rested is this, to reveal his love to us. I want you to notice something in the Genesis passage. What is the very first thing that Adam and Eve experience in this world? What is the very first thing that Adam and Eve experience? Rest. God made Adam and Eve on the sixth day. And on the seventh day, what did God do? He rested. God could have said to Adam, Adam, the first thing you need to do is get to work. I just spent the last six days making all of creation. I've been really busy. Now it's time for you to get busy. 
In fact, your job is to name all the animals, all quadrillion of them. You could start with the little small ones you can't even see. Let me show you what they look like. Get naming, Adam. He could have done it, but he didn't. He didn't. The first thing that Adam and Eve experience is a day of rest. In every other creation account, in all of humanity, you have a Sumerian creation account, the Egyptian creation account, the Akkadian creation account, man is made for toil and labor. We are the slaves of the God. We are here to serve them. We are here to do their work. We work seven days a week. This is what we were made for, is work. But in the creation account in the Bible, God makes man to rest with him. God made all the fish, all the birds, all the bugs, even the weirdest little creatures that you've never even seen before, before he made people. I mean, look at these things. God comes up with this stuff. I don't know why. He makes these things. He puts them into being, and then he makes you and I and rests with us. He could have rested with those animals. He could have rested when there was no people on earth and it was silent. That's my kind of day of rest. You know that? The kids are gone. It's quiet. You know, I can rest and be at ease. God could have been like, on the first day, he made sun and the moon and the stars and he, he separated the waters and now it's like quiet. And I could just sit and rest in this quiet, empty earth. He didn't. He created all of the animals of creation. And then he could have rested there and enjoyed the zoo that he made. But he didn't. He made man and woman, and then he rested with them. And then he rested with them. What was Adam and Eve's first day like? They had good food. You can eat anything out of this garden that I've made. Anything out of this perfect place that I've created. You can eat anything except for that tree of good of knowledge of good and evil. That tree, no. But lots of good food for Adam and Eve. That's what they had the first day. Second thing they had was worship. Walk with me in the cool of the evening. And the third thing that they had was, well, we'll just call it be fruitful and multiply. Some of you are slowly catching up to me. They had good food, worship, and be fruitful and multiply. That sounds like heaven to me. I don't know about you. That's what Adam and Eve's first day in existence was like. We worship the God who created the weekend. We do. We worship the God who created the weekend. But for most of us, weekends only happen if we get all of our work done first. If we get all the other things that we have to get done, done first, then we get a weekend. Work is first, and then we can stop and rest. Once our substantial to-do list it grows every time we turn around. You like it's like a I don't know, it's like a snake. It just pops up and bites you if you look away from it for even a second. That list gets bigger. Once that to-do list is complete, then we can get a day off. But God spins all of this around and upside down when we look at the creation account. We rest first in God's presence. We rest in his love so that we can work. We rest so that we can work. This is how God designed us. He created us to rest in him, to know that God's got this thing. God's the one that makes the world spin. God's the one that holds us all on the planet. God's the one that's got all this stuff together. We don't make any of that happen. And so we rest in his presence, knowing that it is not our work that makes the world go around, nor is it our work that brings us salvation. And then, out of that rest, we are able to work and join. We are actually invited into God's work. 
third reason is this. I think God rested to declare his eternal rest. Hebrews chapter 4, if you want to turn with me there. Hebrews chapter 4. The author of Hebrews is arguing that Jesus is greater than Moses. Moses is the Old Testament hero, the guy that brought the law down from the mountain. He's the guy that led people out of Egypt. He's the guy that led people around the desert to the edge of the promised land. In the Hebrew tradition, Moses is awesome. He is, he is Chuck Norris for the Hebrews. But for the Christians, the early Christians, they're looking to Jesus. And they're looking to Jesus as the author and finisher of their faith. And so there's this big argument. Who's better? Who's greater, Moses or Jesus? And so the author of Hebrews argues that Jesus is greater. And it's not because one is better than the other, one has more skills than the other, that one has you know, better hair than the other, or one had a better movie than the other. It is based on the type of rest that they both gave. It is based on the type of rest that they both gave. Now, if you're not familiar with the story of Moses, the Hebrews had been wandering in the desert for 40 years after being released from slavery in Egypt. They'd been wandering in the desert, coming to the edge of this promised land. God says, I promise you rest in a land that is flowing with milk and honey, that's flowing with goodness. All of your needs will be provided for. I am going to give you a place where you're secure, where you can grow, where you can be fruitful and multiply, where you can enjoy good food, and where you can worship me. Heaven on earth. I'm going to give you this place. And they've been wandering, waiting for it. And they came to the very edge of the wilderness, and they sent spies into the promised land, these seven guys. And they come back, and you know what they said? The land is full of giants. Now, you remember Goliath, David and Goliath? He's this one figure that was standing before all of Israel, one giant man that said, you can't go. What these guys came back and said, the land is full of Goliaths. Full of them. Everywhere you look, there's giants. We can't do it. They'll squash us like bugs. But one man said, we can because God's got this. That is our rest that we are to enter. That is our place to go. But the people failed to trust God, so they wandered in the desert again until every, gener- every person of that generation passed away. They refused to actually enter God's rest. You get this? They refused to enter God's rest. So let's pick up Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. This is what the author of Hebrews has to say about that event. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, in other words, God is still promising us rest, It's just a greater rest than land. It's just a greater rest than a place. Let us fear. Be cautious. Be careful. Lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach his rest. Since you've entered God's rest, since you've found rest in Jesus, let your life reveal it to everybody. Verse 2. For good news came to us just as it did to them. God offered them rest, and he's offered us rest, is what the author is saying. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Now skip ahead to verse 6. Since therefore it remains for some people to enter it, just as the people of Israel refused to enter the promised land, so do people refuse to enter the rest that God has offered us today through Jesus Christ. You guys don't know these people? People that refuse to listen to the gospel message? People who refuse to turn their lives over to Christ and to enter his rest? Since they still exist, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, so entering is a command, entering rest is a command, it's an imperative command, and there's a gospel reason, that's our salvation. Verse 7, again, he appoints a certain day. Today, 
saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Now to verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Does the command to rest still stand for you and I? Yes. We are commanded to rest as a reflection of the rest that we have in Christ Jesus. What do these verses teach us? Number one, rest is a witness. It's a metaphor of what God has prepared from the moment of creation, our salvation. God's been using this metaphor in different ways throughout Scripture. Sabbath, promised land, deliverance from enemies, promise of a Savior. When the Sabbath, when we Sabbath, we declare that Jesus is Lord. Number two, we learn that God wants his people to rest, to live this metaphor out so that other people will enter his rest, so that other people will see that it's not about working for your salvation, but that our salvation flows from rest and relationship. God is still using this metaphor and desires us to use it too. Three, the rest is promised, but we have to choose to enter it. Let us not enter, or to not enter rest, physical rest and spiritual rest, is to actually be disobedient to the Lord's commandment. And disobedience is a sure sign of what? An idol. So now we know why God commands rest. We know that this commandment hasn't really passed away. It comes from before the law. And we know that busyness, refusing to enter his rest, is not God's ideal design for you and I. Now the question remains is how do we do it? How do we rest? How do we Sabbath? How do we keep a day that is holy to the Lord? I got to tell you, our family has been trying to Sabbath for several years now. We have like really tried to make this an intentional part of our life, and it's difficult. It's very difficult to come to this because the world wants us to go faster. The church wants us to do more. More people want appointments and more time with us. Then we look at our house, and it's like the Palouse is against us because every time I turn around, there's another weed someplace. The grass has grown. The paint is falling off the house. There's something else to do. No matter what, the world seems to be, this life we live in seems to be against the idea of rest. It just wants to pile it on. So we struggle and we strive to enter this rest. How do we do it? I'm going to give you some four quick ways that we, do, that we can do this. First of all is this, one in seven. One in seven. It's a ratio. It's, it's God's ratio for our day of rest. Six days of work. One day of rest. Now, I could give you a whole history lesson on which day the Sabbath is supposed to be. Is it Saturday? Is it Sunday? The church celebrated on Sunday. The Hebrews celebrated on Saturday. And I want to say this about this, the, which day it is. It's a red herring. It is a red herring. Remember red herrings? I'm here to distract you. I'm here to distract you from the whole purpose of the Sabbath. We want to get into an argument about which day is which. This has been going on in the church for centuries. So let's just skip that whole argument. Let's go straight to God's ratio. One day of rest in every seven days of work. And that day of rest comes first. We rest one day, work six. Rest one, work six. Rest one, work six. One day in seven. See, rest without work is laziness. But work without rest is slavery. Are you a slave? Or are you lazy? Or are you living out of your intended design? Good question, huh? Most of us can take one day a week off. We 
It's going to be hard, I know, but it is possible for most of us. Remember, even Jesus took a Sabbath. And if you read about his Sabbath days, you're going to notice something. Almost every time the Bible records Jesus is taking a Sabbath, he winds up coming toe-to-toe, head-to-head with a demon. Almost every time. They're popping up, and he's like, get out of there, and he's working on the Sabbath. People are pointing out, hey, you're working on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, look, the Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. We still do good things on the Sabbath. But I think that the thing that gets point, we, we, we look at that and we say, okay, Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It's not a law thing. I don't have to like maintain these standards. But when we, we, we wind up missing this fact that Jesus is facing demons on these days. We miss this bigger picture point, and that's this. When we try to Sabbath, when we try to take a rest, when we declare that Jesus is Lord of our life, we are going to face spiritual opposition against us. We are going to face spiritual opposition. Taking a day of rest will put you into direct spiritual opposition with Satan. As you declare that you, with your schedule that Jesus is Lord, somebody wants to kill, steal, and destroy what God is doing in you. Now, if you're here, here saying, you know, hey, I'm a, I'm a single mom. I've got to work three jobs just to make the ends meet, right? I, I can't take a full day of rest. What am I supposed to do? You just said that this is a, a thing that I have to do, that God is commanding me to do, that God wants me to do. You said that I can't experience joy fully if I don't practice rest. I would say to you, give yourself grace. And I want to give you grace. Grace is what rest is all about. Grace is knowing that, that God has got that God has done the work that I don't have to give yourself grace. Do what you have to do to survive, yes. But maybe look at your life and look at your schedule. Can you take an evening? Can you take a morning? Can you take a half a day? Whatever you can do to carve out time for Sabbath rest, do it. And then do the next thing, which is to prepare. Sabbath takes preparation. You must prepare. You must plan to rest. As Hebrews has said, we have to strive to enter it. When God commands the Hebrews to keep the Sabbath, the word that he uses, keep, keep the Sabbath, keep it holy, that word keep is a war word. It's like you defend it. You fight for it. You stand up for it. You run back to the keep. That's the battlements, the place where we defend the, the city. We are to fight and defend and be ready to rest. What does that mean for us? It means that we have to mow the lawn the day before. It means that maybe we got to prepare a meal the day before. It means that we have to organize our schedule and our time so that we are not doing work on this day that God has designed for rest. We have to plan. It's crazy, it's ironic, but it takes a plan to rest. Number three, so we, we first we take one and seven, we prepare, and then we delight. Now, my heart in this sermon this morning is not to be like, oh, you guys are so lousy, you're working all the time, and you can't experience joy, and you're just anxious and fearful all the time. God didn't intend this command to rest to be a burden on us. He intended it to be a gift. It's a gift, and it's something that we're to, to delight in. The very first Sabbath was a day of delight, to delight in good food, to delight in good friends, to delight in good multiplying. Heaven on earth. And heaven and, and heaven, heaven, our forever Sabbath, is also described as a feast. It's called entering God's joy, living in his presence. 
It sounds delightful to me. A delightful experience that I've ever heard it described. To be able to live in his presence forever. To enjoy our relationship with him. To be brought to a banquet table and to feast with our friends and with our Lord who created all things and called them good and gave them to us. Our day of rest should reflect that. It should be a day of delight. A day in which we do the things that give us life. To do the things that bring us joy. To do the things that build our family up and bring us closer together, not tear us apart. Put yourself in a position to be aware of God's presence on your Sabbath day. A quiet walk in the woods. Listen to good music. Eat a good meal. Sing a worship song. It's a day of delight. And I want to say this, that a day of delight is radically different from a blob day. How many of you heard of blob day? It's a new thing going around. Young adults all know that. Go, oh, blob day, what? Blob day is a day that we do nothing. We don't get up. We, we get up. We don't even put our, take our pajamas off. We go flop down on the couch and we play video games all day. Or we, we, we watch Netflix like for 24 hours. This is what happens if you watch Netflix for 24 hours. It sucks the life out of you, literally, and you become a faceless zombie. If you know what show this is, you'll know what I'm talking about. So much of what we do on our days off, they steal the life from us. They don't restore us. And that's what the Sabbath day is meant to be, a day of restoration and rest, where we delight in the Lord where we delight in our family, where we delight in a good book. And yes, you can delight in a video game, but you can't delight in a video game all day without it sucking the life out of you. Do these things. Do all of these things. And everything that you do on a Sabbath day, may it be a candle that reminds you of God's presence and goodness and the gift that he has given you, that you don't have to do it. Keep your heart and mind focused on the Lord. And lastly, share. Facebook has taught us one thing. If it's taught us one thing, it's taught us that if we like something, we should share it. Right? If we like something, we should share it. When God did finally command a Sabbath rest for his people, he got really specific about what it should look like. He said this, The seventh day is a Sabbath day to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, or your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner that is within your gates. The Sabbath is a gift that you give to other people. You are commanded to Sabbath, and you give that rest to your children. You are commanded to Sabbath, so you give that gift to your wife. You are commanded to Sabbath and rest, so you give that gift to your husband. You are commanded to Sabbath and to rest, and you give that gift to your workers the people who serve in your home, the people who serve in your business, the people who serve in your streets. We give this gift to other people. And we do it pointing them to the Sabbath that Jesus gave us on the cross. When you Sabbath, think about how Jesus gave us a rest for all mankind. And you think, how can you give that gift to somebody else? If you have kids, like we do, we try not to let them have them do chores on their Sabbath day. We'd say, hey, it's Friday. I want you to get your chores done today. I know you had a week at school. Get your chores done today so tomorrow you can just enjoy the day. We could just enjoy the day. We could play a game. We could have popcorn. We could do whatever we want to do and enjoy each other and enjoy the Lord. But let's not work. I don't want you to work on the Sabbath day. 
you own a business, maybe give your employees a day off. If you're the business owner, maybe give yourself a day off. If you have chickens, leave their eggs in their nest for that day. Give them a day off. I'm not really sure how not taking eggs from a chicken is a day off for a chicken, but, you know, we're going to try it. If you have sheep, don't make them do sheepy things on your, their day off. Every day is a day off for a sheep. Maybe you need to commit not to go to the store that day. Maybe you need to take your cell phone and turn it off and put it in the freezer. Maybe you need to commit to not use your computer on the Sabbath because it causes you to work. The Bible can, extends the command to rest to all of creation, not just to us. So share it. One in seven, prepare, delight, share. I want to challenge you to take a Sabbath. And I want to challenge you for a whole month to take a Sabbath. Not a whole month of Sabbath. That's a, that's a sabbatical, totally different. To take a Sabbath, one day in seven for the next month, till January 1st, it's actually kind of a month and a half, to take the entire season of Advent. And I'm, I'm calling you to this today, before Advent starts, as a part of your Advent discipline. Discipline is like, it's like bones. It's what hangs, the meat of our life hangs on. God has given us discipline so that we can build our lives up in Him. And this is a foundational discipline that we miss as Pentecostals, because we're so busy working. We're so, we have such a work ethic. Would you consider, with me, the next month, the season of Advent, in the middle of your finals, young adults, in the middle of the Christmas shopping, in the middle of all the parties and all the celebrations, in the middle of the traveling, to say, I am going to schedule Jesus as Lord of my life, and I am going to take a day of rest, an unproductive day where I don't do anything that adds value to my life as a person or makes me seem more valuable to other people but where I rest in God's presence. One day out of seven. You know, some of you right now are going, I don't even know how I can make that happen. I can't imagine it. I'm going to ask you to commit to it and then figure it out. Commit to it and then figure it out. Because we want to make our excuses now, right? Let's commit to something before the Lord and then figure it out and let him help us. And then see what God does in you. See if you are not more able to be present on Christmas morning. See if you are not more able to experience joy and peace and goodness and kindness. See if you are not more able to recognize God's presence on Tuesday morning because you took off Sunday. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, if the devil cannot make you evil, he will make you busy. Don't allow time to be the thing that takes you away from God. Don't allow time to be the excuse to not come and participate in the people of Christ on a Sunday morning. Don't allow work to take you away from God's presence. I'm going to pray, and we're going to close uh, with just this commitment. And, and as I said before, we want to make a time for, for prayer in the backstage. So if you're still in this place where you're like, this message has rattled you, you're like, I don't know about this or I, it's impossible for me to rest, it's impossible for me to take a time off and you want some prayer, or the pastors are going to be in the back. If you need somebody to stand with you on something, we're going to be in the back ready to pray with you. But on, on the back space, on the corners, they're going to have two ushers. They've got a clipboard for your name and a little card that says, I'm going to keep a Sabbath. And it gives you those four ways to keep a Sabbath. One in seven, prepare, delight, and share. 
And it's just a reminder for you that you're going to do this in a season of Advent. I'm not asking for you know your credit card or anything like that, although if you want to give me your credit card, you can. Uh, just your name that says, I'm committing to do this. And we're going to continue this through Advent season. And I just would like to have you sign up and commit to the Lord, not just to me, but commit to the Lord to take a day of rest. And we're going to just close right now with a, a quick prayer over you. We're going to go to a time of prayer in this room. Um, and a time of commitment, and then a time of just going and resting and enjoying the rest of the day today. Because that's like the best thing you could do. After a sermon like this, what do you need to do? Go rest. Take a breath. Slow down. Hear the Lord. Father, I thank you. I thank you that you have commanded us to rest. I thank you that you didn't suggest it. I thank you that you didn't say, hey, it would be a good idea for you to rest, but that you commanded it for us because you know that it is what is best for us. I thank you that you also fulfilled the law so that we no longer have to be bound by the consequences of our breaking it. But at the same time, Lord, we still need to live in response to it. God, I thank you that you are a God that is not like the gods that our world imagines. Thank you that you are not a God who created us for worship. I thank you that you are not a God who designed us to serve you as slaves but to know you as friends instead. God, I pray that we would stop long enough to know you as our friend, not just as our Savior, but as our friend. That we would know your peace, that we would know your kindness and your goodness, that we would know your love, and that we would discover joy in knowing you as we stop long enough to rest in your presence. So Jesus, for those of us right now who have thousand things going through our mind that we have to do in order to finish our to-do list so that we can rest. God, I pray that we would rest in you first. We would set that list aside and say, no, this is first. Relationship with you is first. Time with you is first. Time with my family is first. Time knowing that you have this thing is first. And then that we would go out from that and go forth. So Jesus, bless this body as they rest in you. May they remember that Sabbath is a sign that God really, really loves us. May we know that you really, really love us. In Jesus' name, amen. Go in the grace of our Lord to remember that he really, really loves you and wants to be with you. And know that Heidi and I love you too. Uh, we're just going to keep this place as a kind of a quiet, reflective place. Uh, Danny's just going to play for a little bit. We're welcome to pray down here in the backspace if you need prayer. Um, sign up for a Sabbath day and go in the grace of our Lord to rest in him. Amen.